Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and Church History, Brother K. Godfrey. This next section will be in three parts, The Echo of a Beating Heart, Part 2. Welcome back. It's good to be with you again. Since our last podcast, I started to uh, contemplate um, if I wasn't being perhaps a little too detailed. Uh, The last thing I want you to do is to get bogged down with minutiae. But honestly, almost every day of the prophet's life during the Kirtland era was a recordable day. And so I've decided to continue to be as comprehensive as possible um, with, without getting you bogged down. I'll emphasize the, the important things that I feel uh, happened during the course of his, his life in, in the Kirtland era and, and hope you'll find it interesting. We'll stay with the direction we're headed. And so this is the Echo of a Beating Heart, Part 2. And we'll be covering today um, the years of 1831 through 1833. We last left Joseph readying himself for a commandment trip to Missouri. On June the 19th, 1831, Joseph Smith's party left for Missouri, which was approximately a thousand miles away. Now, at the same time, the displaced Colesville Saints were told to leave also for Independence, Missouri. They were again led by Newell Knight. Remember, the Colesville Saints had been kicked off Lehman Copley's property as they attempted to live the law of consecration. (coughs) Copley lost his testimony and booted the Saints, so they had no place to really go, so they're headed to Missouri. So they're 60 strong, and they're going to arrive in Missouri in July of 1831, two weeks prior to Joseph's party. As the prophet's party approached independence, he thought the land and country was beautiful beyond description. However, he thought differently of the inhabitants. Quote, How natural it was to observe the degradation, leanness of intellect, ferocity, and jealousy of a people that were nearly a century behind the times, and to feel for those who roamed about without the benefit of civilization and refinement of religion. Now, the Colesville Saints decided to settle in Caw Township, about nine miles west of Independence. On July 20th, the prophet received a revelation, Doctrine and Covenants section 57, specifying that Independence, Missouri, was to be the center place for Zion and a place where a temple should be built. Let's take a look for a minute at this section. Uh, The italics above this section is important. It says, Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet in Zion, Jackson County, Missouri, July the 20th, 1831, in compliance with the Lord's command to travel to Missouri, where he would reveal the land of your inheritance. The elders had journeyed from Ohio to Missouri's western border. Joseph Smith contemplated the state of the Lamanites and wondered, when will the wilderness blossom as a rose? When will Zion be built? up in her glory, and where will the temple stand unto which all nations will come in the last days? Subsequently, he received this revelation. In the first three verses, Hearken, O ye elders of the church, saith the Lord your God, who have assembled yourself together according to my commandment in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. 
Wherefore, this is the land of promise, and the place for the city of Zion. And thus saith the Lord your God, If you receive wisdom, here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now called Independence is the center place, and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. A very, very specific revelation. On August the 2nd, the prophet assisted 11 others from the Colesville branch lay the first log in Zion. This is going to be for a meeting house and a school. The Joshua Lewis home is going to be the site of the first conference of the church in Missouri. The site of the schoolhouse was just immediately south of this home. Sidney Rigdon then dedicated the land for the gathering of the saints. The next day, on August the 3rd, 1831, the Independence Temple site was dedicated by Joseph. Those present were W.W. Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, Edward Partridge, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Coe, and Martin Harris. Now, the temple lot is later going to be purchased in December of 1831 by Bishop Edward Partridge. I want to show this picture to you. This is kind of an obscure um Picture. This is a, a a picture by Virginia Brown, and it portrays these men as they stand in this wooded area, dedicating this spot for a temple someday to be built. I wanted to show you that. It's kind of a, a hard picture to find. This particular parcel of ground that was dedicated by the prophet with these others in attendance consisted of an important 63.43 acres of land. The area today consists of three different entities that own this property, and this particular slide kind of outlines those three. You have the Community of Christ Church at one time known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They own the property outlined with the two black squares. Then you have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, which owns 20 acres. So the Community of Christ owns 40. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints owns 20, and theirs is the white property. And then the little orange box is property that is owned by the Church of Christ Temple Lot, or Hedrakites, as sometimes they're known. This particular slide shows what is on the property as it exists today. This is the Community of Christ. Of course, they have their temple, and then they have their auditorium. This is where their world headquarters is. And then the Church of Christ Hedrakites, or Church of Christ Temple, excuse me, or Hedrakites, has their world headquarters. That's the little building there, and, and they have a little, little grassy knoll area there. They're two and a half, three acres. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints property that's on this temple lot consists, of course, of the visitor center, an event field, there's parking lots surrounding a stake center. So that's what's owned, and those are the pieces of, uh, of, of property that we're, that we're concerned about. So Bishop Partridge is going to meet in the home of Jones H. Flournoy. He's the owner, and he's going to negotiate a fee of $130 for this 63.43 acres. That's a pretty good price. Now, I want to take just a minute and focus in on this two and a half or three acres owned by the Church of Christ Temple Lot, or the Hedrakites, as they're sometimes referred to as. On August the 16th, 1863, Granville Hedrick, he's a leader of six branches of the church in Illinois, following the death of Joseph Smith in 1844, began to instruct his members that the time to return to Zion was near at hand. These people did not go with Brigham Young, obviously, to, to Utah. 
and they didn't fracture off to one of the other groups that went elsewhere. They stayed right there in Illinois. And so he's got quite a large congregation, and they start to assemble in independence. In 1867, under his direction, they begin to gather and to purchase the abandoned temple lot. Between the years of 1880 and 1890, the RLDS Church sued the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Hedrickites for recovery of the land that they felt was rightfully theirs. The Supreme Court agreed. However, the Church of Christ or Hedrickites um, were permitted to retain a very small portion upon which their, their church was built. In 1904, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was able to purchase 20 acres of original temple property. Now, this particular slide is really an interesting slide. The railroad tracks right down the middle that you see there is Joseph Smith's church, or the Brighamite church, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can see so many splinter groups that have, uh, have taken place. Uh, since the church was organized, in particular shortly after the death of Joseph Smith. On the bottom you see three entities that are identified here. The purple line is the Church of Christ Temple Lot. The blue line is the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Community of Christ Church. And then again the railroad tracks is identified as the Brighamite or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These three entities are the plaintiffs involved in the Supreme Court battle over this 63.43 acres. But I find it so fascinating to see so many splinter groups, in particular that happened shortly after the death of Joseph Smith. In 1929, while the Hedrickites were digging the foundation for a temple that would never be constructed, they discovered two very important stones. One stone was found on May 18, 1929, under 18 inches of soil, and reads 40W 1831. Presumably, this stone was placed 40 feet west of the northeast corner of the temple. The other stone reads SECT 1831 and was found on June 26, 1929, beneath the roots of one of the large maple trees. Now, presumably, this indicated the southeast corner temple marker. Now, there is some controversy over whether Joseph dedicated a lot or a temple spot. The stones found would lend one to believe that this was a specific location for a particular building on this lot. If members of the Church of Christ temple lot were put side by side, the temple they attempted to build would be 180 feet by 90 feet based on the discovery and location of these two stones. However, in June of 1833, Joseph would send a plat map to Missouri showing the configuration of the 24 temple complex, which obviously is much bigger than 180 by 90. Now, the only description that I've ever been able to locate that describes what this complex might look like is from Orson Pratt. He records a description in volume 24 of the Journal of Discourses. He talks about 24 different compartments fashioned in a circular form and arched over the center. The various buildings are specific to the different orders and quorums of the two priesthoods. He said, and I quote, The Lord is not confined to an exact pattern to building temples any more than he is confined to the creation of worlds be very fascinating to see ultimately what this temple complex looks like. 
well, as sacred as this piece of property was and is, the Civil War had numerous battles fought in independence on this very Temple Lot site. It is interesting to note the variety of splinter groups that today exist in and around the Temple Lot, all claiming various rights and privileges to this 64 acres of property. You see here depicted the remnant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint or the Church of Jesus Christ Outreach Restoration Branch, and there are many others. With the work of the Lord temporarily accomplished, Joseph and his friends departed. On August 9th, en route to Kirtland, the party took to canoes on the Missouri River. After two days of progress, one of the canoes nearly capsized after running into a tree that was stuck in the bottom of the river and whose branches were weaving in the current. The prophet and Sidney were two of those that nearly drowned as they were tossed into the water from their canoe. At this occurrence, many of the brethren in the party had experiences that caused them to fear traveling on the Missouri River any further. They camped at McLean's Bend. That night, William Weinfeld saw a vision of, quote, the destroyer in his most horrible power riding upon the water. The next day, the prophet received Doctrine and Covenant 61 concerning the leaders traveling on the water. Let me read that to you. <clears throat> and now I give unto you a commandment that what I say unto one, I say unto all, that you shall forewarn your brethren concerning these waters, that they come not in journeying upon them, lest their faith fail, and they are caught in snares. I, the Lord, have decreed, and the destroyer rideth upon the face thereof, and I revoke not the decree. On September the 12th, 1831, the prophet moved from Kirtland, 30 miles south, to the home of John Johnson in Hiram, Ohio. Earlier in the spring, Ezra Booth, a Methodist preacher, had brought Mr. Johnson and his wife Elsa to the home of Joseph. Elsa had a partially paralyzed arm, and the prophet healed her. Ezra Booth, John and Elsa Johnson, and a few of the Johnson children joined the church. It is interesting that not all of the Johnson children, however, remained faithful in the church. In fact, most of them did not. Eli, Edward, and John all fell away from the church. Olmstead Johnson was told that if he did not join the church, he would never see his parents again. Well, he elected not to join. And that fall, Olmstead traveled through the southern United States and Mexico, and on his way home he suddenly took sick and died, never to see his family again. Another witness to the Johnson miracle, Ezra Booth, would soon become one of the most apostate, bitter, anti-Mormon persecutors in the area. I have put Luke and Lyman up here for you to take a look at. Luke and Lyman remained faithful to, to the church for some time, and in fact were called to serve as modern-day apostles for the church. And I like this quote. This quote is how Joseph Smith healed Elsa's arm. Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee to be whole. And then he walked out of the room. Elsa was instantly healed, and the next day she did her her washing without difficulty or pain. The Johnsons did gratefully invite the prophet to live with them. The prophet, Emma, and their two adopted twins stayed for one year in the Johnson home. Joseph's study became known as the Revelation Room. Sixteen sections of the Doctrine and Covenants would be given there. At this time, Joseph and Sidney resumed the translation of the Bible. Behind me, and to my right, is a, a picture of the Revelation Room, uh, Simon Dewey's uh, picture. It's a beautiful picture. 
depicting Joseph standing by the window, contemplating, I'm sure, revelations that he would receive there. As you can see, these revelations were were quite varied. That the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants was received there, as well as the appendix to the Doctrine and Covenants was received. The appendix stating to gather in Zion, by the way. But perhaps the most incredible vision or revelation received by the prophet Joseph during his lifetime was received right there in this room, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, the three degrees of glory, which we'll talk about in a moment or two. In 2001, the Johnson home was completely renovated. I had the opportunity to be there during this project and researched parts of this home that have seldom been seen. Been seen. It's, it's, let me reread that, okay? In 2001, the Johnson home was completely renovated, and I had the opportunity to be there during this project and researched parts of this home that have seldom been seen. It was really incredible to be down underneath in the original foundation stones and to see what color of paint was scraped from the wall, the first coat of what was put on the cabinets. It was, a, it was an incredible experience. In the fall of 1831, another great name in church history entered the scene. This is Orson Hyde. Orson was baptized by Sidney Rigdon, and he had a great destiny ahead of him. Joseph confirmed him, telling him that he would serve a mission to Jerusalem. Orson served as one of the original Twelve Apostles. However, in 1838, he was cut off from the church for testifying against the prophet Joseph. He repented of that, however, and was reinstated in the Quorum of Twelve in 1839. By 1840, Orson and Apostle John E. Page were commanded to go to the land of Palestine and dedicate it for the return of Judah's scattered remnants. Elder Page lost interest and never did go on the mission. Orson went on by himself and dedicated the land while on the Mount of Olives and also on Mount Zion. The October Conference of the Church proved to be somewhat remarkable. It was held at the home of Cyrene's Burnett, a neighbor of John Murdoch in Orange, Ohio. You remember John Murdoch who gave two twins uh, to Joseph and Emma. That would be Julia Murdoch Smith and young Joseph Murdoch Smith. At this particular conference, 11 witnesses of the Book of Mormon bore testimony. 29 priesthood ordinances took place, and 24 families entered into the Law of Consecration, a very meaningful conference. It was also decided that 10,000 copies of the Book of Commandments, the predecessor to the Doctrine and Covenants, would be printed. The prophet charged Oliver Cowdery with the printing. It was to be done at the press in Missouri. John Whitmer was to accompany Oliver as the church historian and recorder to Missouri. A group of six brethren were called as stewards over the Revelations and Commandments, and they became known as the Literary Firm. On November 3, 1831, Joseph received by Revelation Doctrine and Covenants 133. This revelation became known as the Appendix, and we showed you that earlier. A proclamation for the saints to gather to Zion. In the end of 1831, uh, this was a, a great time of progress and vindication for the prophet. The Independence Temple lot was now purchased by Bishop Partridge in Missouri, and Newell K. Whitney became the bishop in Kirtland. The reality was the church had two central places of government. 
What happened in Kirtland now affected the saints in Missouri, much like the echo of a beating heart. Twice as much church, twice as many blessings, twice as much persecution. December 1831 seemed to be a little leak in the dike, you might say. It began with the apostate Ezra Booth, who published nine anti-Mormon articles in local news, the local newspaper, which was called the Ohio Star. The Lord called Joseph and Sidney to leave on a mission for a month and travel to the nearby towns of Shalersville and Streetsboro to counter Booth's teachings. On December 25th, Sidney Rigdon challenged Ezra Booth to a debate in Ravenna. Well, Booth never appeared. Sidney then preached to the gathered crowd and referred to Booth's letters as a bundle of falsehoods. Ezra Booth is given credit for being the first apostate of the church. After leaving the church, he became a Methodist preacher and eventually a spiritualist. He died an infidel without religion at all. With the church growing concurrently in Kirtland and Independence, Kirtland became the governing center and Independence offered the opportunity to practice the law of consecration. All saints who went to Missouri were put under a covenant to live the law, which originally had been tried in Thompson, Ohio with the Colesville saints. Bishop Edward Partridge coordinated the storehouse in Missouri. I found this cartoon. I thought it was kind of cute. We have a father addressing a son who has got scriptures in his hand and now come across the law of consecration. And he says to his dad that he wants to uh, to be consecrated. Okay, let me start over with this cartoon. Okay, I found this cartoon the other day, and I thought it was kind of cute. A father is addressing his son, who has scriptures in his hand and has just come across the law of consecration. And the dad says to his son, Sure, I'd be willing to practice the law of consecration with the car as soon as you start practicing it with the mortgage payment. <laughs> so many different approaches to the law of consecration. Oliver Cowdery's arrival in Jackson County on January 5, 1832 with the manuscript copies of the Book of Commandments added a sense of urgency to W.W. W. Phelps' print projects. On Tuesday, May 29th, the office of the Evening and Morning Star was dedicated for the printing of all materials appertaining to the Lord. I've got a copy right here in front of me of uh, the first two uh, volumes of the Evening and Morning Star, 1832 through 1834. Um, it's a rather uh, interesting book, and as you can see, the writing is very, very small. You'd have to have a telescope or a microscope of some sort to be able to, to see this stuff. But the Evening uh, and Morning Star was a fascinating compilation of material, which I'll reference here in just a second. I just wanted to kind of show you what that looked like. On February the 16th, 1832, at the Johnson Farm, one of the most magnificent visions ever given to Joseph was received. Joseph and Sidney were permitted to see both God the Father, Jesus Christ, and Satan. They witnessed the great councils in heaven and the rebellion and the impending war. They came to understand the concept of life after death and that God's house has many mansions. This revelation has become known as the three degrees of glory. And I like this quote that I have on this slide. It's taken from the History of the Church, Volume 5. The prophet says, I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdom manifest to me in the vision were I permitted, and were the people prepared to receive them.
boy, someday it'll be very interesting to know the breadth and width of what this uh, particular rev revelation actually covered. After having been sustained as president of the high priesthood in January at a conference in Amherst, Ohio, Joseph decided it was time to select counselors. So on March 8, 1832, Joseph selected Jesse Gauze and Sidney Rigdon as his counselors. Now, Jesse lasted only a year and fell away from the church, and so Joseph replaced him with Frederick G. Williams on March 18, 1833. Well, during the spring and, and the summer of 1832, the church grew rapidly. 350 more saints arrived in Missouri. It became necessary because of the lack of provisions that all saints wanting to go to independence had to have prior authorization from Newell K. Whitney, the bishop in Ohio. With the growth of the church came added persecution. In March of 1832, the prophet sensed danger. He started using fictitious names in his revelations to prevent his enemies from knowing the plans of the church. Three of John Johnson's sons were among the growing number who hated the prophet. And on just a side note, in 1981, the church replaced the fictitious names with the real names. Now I have here in front of me a 1918 copy of the Doctrine and Covenants, and in, I believe it's section 62, uh, excuse me, 82, and section 82 is a, uh, a reference to some of these fictitious names. I thought I'd take a minute and just read to you verse 11. It says, Wherefore verily I say unto you that it is expedient for my servant Alam and Ashadad that would be Newell K. Whitney, Mahalaleel and Pelagorum, that would be Sidney Rigdon, and my servant Gaslam, Joseph Smith, and Hora and Olaha, that would be Oliver Cowdery, and Shalamancia, Shalamancia, can't even pronounce these names, and Mahemson, that's Martin Harris, to be bound together by a bounden covenant that cannot be broken by transgression, to manage the affairs of the poor and all things pertaining to the bishoprics both in the land of Zion and the land of Shinha, which is Kirtland. So you see the references to these of these fictitious names, uh, again, trying to make it so that the enemies of the church couldn't really determine the direction the church was headed. So if you've got a doctrine and covenants that is older than... Um, 1981, perhaps you can uh, find these, these fictitious names still in your book. On the evening of March 26th, while still living at the Johnson uh, farm, uh, hatred and persecution literally exploded. As Joseph was tending to the needs of his young son, Joseph Murdoch Smith, who had contracted, by the way, measles, he heard this light tapping on the window pane, and as he approached the window, the door burst open, and a mob of 60 gra grabbed Joseph and dragged him out the door. They uh, choked him into unconsciousness and stripped him and beat him savagely. They tarred and feathered him from head to foot. The tar paddle and a poison vial were shoved into his mouth, which caused a tooth to break, and it left the prophet with a slight whistle for the rest of his life. And Sidney Rigdon, who lived just down the street in a little bungalow, was also dragged out into the cold night air. He was dragged around by his heels with a horse, and Sidney would carry the mental scars of that evening for the rest of his life. The following day, from the front porch 
of the Johnson home, the prophet, scarred and defaced, preached to a, gra- to a gathered crowd that consisted of many of the mob who stood sunned. I'm going to, I need to start this okay. over. The following day from the front porch of the Johnson home, the prophet, scarred and defaced, preached to a gathered crowd consisting of many of the mob who stood stunned and surprised at Joseph's resilience. And then five days later, baby Joseph Murdoch Smith died due to the exposure suffered that evening. Now, this is the fourth child of Emma to die as an infant, and this death weighed heavy on Emma, and she never quite recovered from the death of young Joseph Murdoch Smith. It's interesting. In 1950, Nez Ludwall compiled some research that he had done and put it into a book entitled The Fate of the Persecutors of the Prophet Joseph Smith. His research reflects the ultimate fate of those who persecuted the prophet that evening. He says that a Mr. Raymond, one of the leaders of the mob, was later in life confined to bed where slow death came upon him, mortification setting in at the toes. He literally died inch by inch. Miles Norton, who poisoned the Johnson watchdog, was killed by a ram in his barnyard, its spiral horn being thrust through Norton's body. Warren Waste and Carnot Mason boasted of having bent the prophet's legs over his back, holding him face down in the dirt. Waste was killed by a falling log while building a home, and Mason died of a spinal infection that was extremely painful. And the man who tried to pour the poison into the mouth of Joseph was buried alive while digging a deep well. Well, it just doesn't pay to persecute the Lord's anointed. In an effort to avoid further persecution, the prophet was told by the Lord to go visit the saints in Missouri. And so on April 26, 1832, Joseph conducted a general conference of the church in Independence, Missouri. Here he put in order the physical affairs of the church. He established a central board of control to manage both bishoprics, Kirtland and Independence. Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris were on this board. This firm had two branches, one in Kirtland called the Newell K. Whitney Company and one in Zion called the Gilbert Whitney and Company. This effort to combine both bishoprics became known as the United Order. Joseph also decided due to lack of funds only 3,000 copies of the Book of Commandments would be published. W. W. Phelps was also instructed to print a collection of hymns gathered by Emma. Emma's hymns, her 1835 hymn book, has 90 hymns in it. In 1840, the prophet asked her to expand the hymn book uh, to, co- to include hymns that would be meaningful to converts uh, coming from England. And this particular 1840-1841 hymn book would have 345 hymns, so many more hymns. But the 1835 hymn book of 90 hymns was the original hymn book. Well, after a few weeks, the prophet bid farewell and started his journey from Independence to go home. Joseph and Newell K. Whitney and Sidney Rigdon were traveling by stagecoach near Greenville, Indiana. Suddenly, the horses became frightened, and Bishop Whitney attempted to jump from the stage. Well, he broke his leg in several places. The prophet remained with Newell for a month while the leg healed. This opportunity provided time for Joseph to ponder many things. Emma was pregnant at this time, and she was constantly on his mind. One evening, after dinner, the prophet was taken very ill. He commenced vomiting profusely. His jaw was dislocated. He sought out Newell for a blessing. As he was blessed, he was immediately healed. 
The prophet had nearly lost his life. Someone had poisoned him. In June of 1832, in Independence, Missouri, W.W. W. Phelps printed the first edition of the Evening and Morning Star. It carried no local news. It was primarily concerned with modern revelations and some world news, especially disasters or events that would infer that we're living in the latter days. Now, again, back to my, my Evening and Morning Star. From the very first edition of this particular periodical, I just want to read a paragraph to you to let you get a feel of the kind of things that were in this. And I will have to put my telescopic glasses on here to read this. But again, this is the very first edition. Uh, <laughs> Worldly Matters, the times we in which we live. It says, we have fallen upon other times than the church of God have ever seen before. Times in which the saints amount the religion and moral influence which once availed to advance the cause of Christ will not enable it to hold its own. The intellect of man, wakened up to new activity, has burst the chains that bound it and the barriers that confined it, and with tenfold means of influence is going forth in its mightiness to agitate society. Our foundations are broken, and principles and maxims are undergoing a thorough and perilous revision, and that is of a mighty scale. Well, we don't talk like that anymore, thank heavens. But frankly, that paragraph pretty much portrays what we're living in right now. And so that's the kind of stuff that was in the uh, evening and morning star. Well, in the fall of 1832, in Caw Township, the Colesville branch opened up uh, the Colesville School. Now, this school is going to have a principal and schoolmaster by the name of Parley P. Pratt. He'd be the first teacher. And uh, with the church needing funds for relief of the saints and for printing costs of things like the, the Book of Commandments and the Evening and Morning Star, Newell K. Whitney was then sent to Albany, New York, to acquire loans for the church, which he was successful in doing. In September of 1832, with Emma expecting, Joseph, Julia Murdoch-Smith, and Emma moved from the John Johnson home back into the safety of Kirtland and into the upper rooms of the Newell K. Whitney store. Here the family would live for a year, from September 1832 to February of 1834. In these upper rooms, 20 revelations would be received. 18 conferences would be held, and the School of Prophets would be conducted. On November 6, 1832, Joseph Smith III was born in the northwest corner of the Newell K. Whitney store. With four of five children dead, Joseph Smith III came as a great joy to both Joseph and Emma. However, it is interesting to note that Joseph Smith III became the first president of the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, or as we know it today as the Community of Christ Church. This brings to mind the emphasis that the prophet was trying to make on the mind of Emma when on June 27, 1844, just prior to leaving for Carthage, he turned to her three times and said, quote, Can you raise our children in the Lord? Well, more than 1,500 miles away, another prophet was being shaped, molded, and prepared. 
On April 14, 1832, Brigham Young was baptized in Menden, New York. He and his brother, Joseph Young, and a close friend, Heber C. Kimball, set out on a journey to visit the Prophet Joseph. On November the 8th, they arrived in Kirtland, and what an occasion this must have been. One prophet looking for the first time into the eyes of another. These three men would become some of Joseph's most loyal colleagues. Just hours after their meeting, the prophet Joseph was heard at a prayer meeting to say, and I quote, The time will come that Brother Brigham Young will preside over the church. November brought some highs and lows. Many of the prophet's friends had now purchased property and were living in Kirtland. Joseph, with Sidney as a scribe, made good progress on the translation of the New Testament. Joseph also feels some somewhat dis discouraging reports from the leadership of the church with regards to the 810 saints now living in Missouri. In December, the Lord asked for a temple to be built in Kirtland. However, five months later, the saints are going to be chastened for not having even started the project. Another paradox that occurred centered around two revelations Joseph received in late December. The first, received on Christmas Day, 1832, became known as Doctrine and Covenants 87, the prophecy on war. This revelation prophesied the impending civil war starting in South Carolina. This war started 28 years and four months after this prophecy was given. The second revelation was given two days later, on December 27, 1832. It became known as Doctrine and Covenants, Section 88, The Olive Leaf, A Message of Hope. This revelation instructed Joseph to organize the School of Prophets. Well, that'll pretty well conclude what we want to cover today. Our next podcast, uh, The Echo of a Beating Heart, Part 3, we will follow Joseph into the School of Prophets and listen to him instruct. Some incredible things are about to happen. Until then, enjoy your continued study of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I hope what we discuss is of benefit to you. Thank you for joining me. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com. And coming soon are six hours of DVDs following the footsteps of Joseph.